0: Listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Warundri people.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Robin Whittaker.
0: And Robin and I are discussing readings for um, Pentecost Eleven. And in particular, we're focusing on Genesis 37, 1 to 4, and 12 to 28, and Romans 10, verses 5 to 15. And Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. So, Robin, uh, to kick us off, we've got uh, the Genesis passage before us, the first of um, two parts about Joseph's life that the lectionary gives us. So we've heard a bit about Jacob, mm-hmm. um, his father, but it, it would probably be good to just give a bit of background for everyone about where Joseph fits Yep, and what sort of context we've got.
1: Yeah, great. Um, so we've been tracing this way back now for weeks from Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and Rebecca and who had Esau and Jacob. And again there we're gonna see themes that continue of younger sons usurping older mm. sons, so and of favoritism. So Jacob was Rebecca's favourite. We remember that story of tricking Isaac with the Esau and the red stew and giving up the birthright and that caused a huge division. The brothers eventually reconciled and Jacob would marry Leah and Rachel eventually um, eventually after working seven years being tricked lots of tricking that goes on in these stories being tricked with the wrong sister and then being given the other one and we're going to get named at the beginning of our passage here today um, Bilhar and Zilpah, who are referred to as the wives of his father um, the wives of Jacob but they're effectively concubines so Mm. he's now had a bunch of children and the other bit so, and those children will be the 12 tribes. I was going to say, it's had yeah. 12 children. Yes, twelve. well, 12 boys. 12 the, girl, boys. the girls oh, don't get oh, a lot oh, of true. mention. 13. But Sorry. the 12 boys are important um, because they will historically become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Israel is, we might remember that Jacob dream story where he gets renamed, and that's happened just a few chapters before this, where he gets given a new name of Israel. So we're in this kind of family lineage, patriarchy stories of Israel but now moving to kind of almost these stories that are about the foundation of what will become known as the structure of Israel, the tribes of Israel, but we're still going to see younger sons and favoritism and all those dynamics. I was going to
0: say, it's a, it's a, it's a litany of dysfunction, as we might put it <laughs> in modern terms, which could be quite, you know, I suppose
1: comforting. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Your family could be this bad. Yeah. Well, maybe it is. Um, and so we find out a few things here in these opening few verses, which is Joseph is is the youngest? He's seventeen, a child of um, Jacob's old age, and he gets given in verse three this ornamented tunic. Is one translation now? Not, not a, a technicolored dream coat no. or a multicolored rainbow robe, um, as lovely as those are, and some churches have them and might be tempted to trot, trot them out. But actually. Um, the only other place in the Bible we get this language that describes this kind of probably long-sleeved, very ornate foot-length tunic is in 2 Samuel 13, where Tamar, the daughter of King David, is equally given and wears the same kind of robe. So this is a royal robe. Mm. It's the gift of a father to a child that actually says something about their status um, and that actually sets Joseph up to be divided from his brothers. They're all shepherds but the others are out in the fields mm. and Joseph is at home with his father being dressed in this ornate royal robe.
0: Which perhaps provoked what we don't see in the lectionary this week, provokes the two dreams. Yes. Which I think at least the preacher needs to explain what those are yep. if, if you don't choose to read them anyway. Yeah. It's part of the
1: reading. I think that's right, and we should notice these are dreams. These are not described as visions from God. Or prophecies. Uh, or, anything. or prophecies, although dream and vision is a blurry category in the Hebrew Bible. But there is a possibility that there's a sense that Joseph dreams these things because he's been given this role. I was going to say, like it's, it's
0: confirmation of
1: the royal. Yeah, it's enacting out what's been gifted him, which is he now thinks his brothers all should bow down to him, and you can kind of understand why they might think he's a bit of a twat.
0: You can, and you can also ask why then would his father, cognizant of this
1: Mm. this disunity,
0: would then send this disliked brother out to find the others in fields?
1: Yep. So there's lots of questions. I mean, I think if you're preaching on this, um, Fran and I were talking before, you've almost got to kind of keep the story going and maybe preach on this next part next Mm. week because – There's so many questions we could ask about what kind of circle, you know, how bad do things have to get for brothers to start killing brothers?
0: Throwing them into pits. Yeah, selling
1: them. Where is God in all of this? God seems strangely absent from the story.
0: God is strangely absent and actually his name is absent from the story entirely. So when I was considering and I was thinking, well, yes, you you wouldn't just preach on this one, this passage this week. If you're going to preach on one, you preach on both or – Perhaps you might wait till next week, <laughs> yeah, and uh, preach on the
1: whole story. Um, so, say a bit more about why why you'd say that. Because what where where does God's well, hand sort of well, appear? God, in
0: the- well, God. Well, we'll save that up for the next episode. But um, <laughs> in short, we see that God does manage to make something. Yeah. Make something good. Make yep. blessing come from this level of disruption and um, human forgetfulness and um, human, um, well, hatred (laughs) of of the other and so that God builds God's blessing nonetheless.
1: Yeah, and that God can work, something can be worked for the good of other people even out of this kind of devastation. Mm. Yeah. and I'm trying to say that carefully because that is not the same as saying God throws us into these pits of trial for the sake of doing something sa- good, but rather that we, we will discover that God's actually been with Joseph the whole time, and can, you know, kind of work with him to make something good of the circumstance yeah. he ends up in as a slave in in a foreign land.
0: Yeah, and we're, and we're, as preachers, we also seek to do that, of course, without any theological gloss over the very real. Um, suffering that goes on there for yep. the forgotten people, like the slaves hardly mentioned
1: yes, exactly
0: um, so I, I guess a, a preaching um, focus for this passage this week um, is how how do we find ourselves how do we how how do we deceive ourselves to such an extent that we victimize mm-hmm. others
1: yes. Yeah, when, when do we get caught up in such dysfunctional kind of systems and, and ways of behaving as humans with resentment, jealousy, hatred, um, power, fights over power, I mean all of that sort of bubbling under the surface.
0: And marginalising yeah, the fe- other.
1: Yeah, and who feels marginalised? So Joseph will end up being completely mm. marginalised but partly because the brothers do right? Hmm. They feel completely overlooked. So where do our own, I think texts like this can be really helpful, almost as functioning as a bit of a mirror and to hmm. us and saying, you know, who are we in this story? Uh, if you're going to preach on this, you might want to play play with some of those questions. Um, and, and when in our own world, do we get caught up in a kind of a mob mentality where we, we other people and we think that life over there is not worth, I mean, you could go to, I mean, Human slavery. This kind of behaviour. This is. There's endless modern examples yeah. of of versions of this still going on. Um, yeah. So we, we turn a blind eye because we're only interested in our own self interests and that kind of stuff.
0: So I think that's very clearly um, a focus here, and also a way. Like you know, there's conceptions that the Bible's full of un- You know. Unbelievable stuff. I'm talking about, you know, preaching in the secular sort of contexts, or yeah. is is full of unreality. Yes, there's something here about this being very much the human reality. Like the Bible is extremely real. Yes, <laughs> about how we very. really can be and really yeah. are. Yes. Uh, so I think this yeah. passage is an invitation to underline that, not to leave people with feeling rotten. Of course, no. Um, and you know, there there are there is another passage set for. This week, um, in Romans, particularly, that um, preaches the universal love and um, embrace of God over all people. Yeah, um, which we'll go into in a bit more detail. Um, and that is all people, including
1: people who behave like this. People who right? behave like yeah. this. So, I mean, they're they're Paul. Well, we're starting to head in that direction. They're they're Paul. It's the all is very much about including the Gentiles in with the Jews, mm. but um you know
0: this is this is we the gentiles being um invited into a blessing that yeah. has come through people like this
1: that's right come through so. other imperfect people and they are all included in god's grace and god's yeah. promises so it's also a i mean these stories are confronting right because we want to hate the brothers and say well anyone who behaves like that deserves to have no place in
0: but then i can understand why they were so yeah oh yeah. disenfranchised
1: Exactly. So we might have sympathy, we might want to completely write them off, um, but the wider gospel message, such as we find in Romans, particularly in in today's readings, doesn't let us do that.
0: And one last thing perhaps I'd say too to underline, and you did allude to this in this being um, um, the latest in a long line of the younger brothers usurping the Mm. older brothers' place, but I I think it can't be over stated that in these times it was the eldest son who inherited the father's wealth and inherited that in much greater proportion than the yo- any younger siblings or younger yeah. brothers, yeah. of course. Um, and so um, it is a radical disruption that um, God's hand is bringing at every yeah. level of society. It's causing all this meddlesome stuff, but that's because it is so disruptive.
1: Yeah, so and so something's
0: going on about yeah. order and
1: and in a in a sense, this is. I mean, we get to all these weird kingdom parables we've had recently in Matthew's gospel and the lectionary, that are about reversing things, and we've mm. got s- some still more to come. But we get those themes as you've said here, and not just in the younger son taking the place of the older son, but in the Joseph story, we're going to get a a younger son who has delusions of grandeur, who's radically humbled and sold as a slave ends up in a foreign land, but then will somehow again be elevated. So, I mean, the the dramatic dips and troughs of this story, They're I mean, epic. they are dramatic. They are epic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they are epic. Um, it has a novel-like quality to it. But there's there's something in that about the way that God, you know, the first can become last and, and, and that kind of radical reversal of, of things in God's world.
0: And on that note, let's move across to Romans 15, 5, 10 even. Romans 10, beg your pardon, Romans 10 verses 5 to 15. Mm. So this chapter 10 comes amidst a significant passage in Romans, doesn't it, about um, Mm. dealing with what to do if Israel rejects Jesus' Messiah? Does that actually undermine God's promise, God prom- God's promises to all? So yeah. if Israel's rejecting Jesus, can we still believe God's promises?
1: Yes, because those promises come through Israel, right? The promise right. is that the blessing will come mm. through Israel. So if Israel is rejecting Jesus, what happens to that? And I think we have to read a little bit of the, the couple of verses before this for context. Mm-hmm. Um because verse 5 starts with a kind of, for Moses writes concerning, and it's continuing a line of thought. So even just the verse just before this, 10.4, um, yeah. you know, Christ is the goal, the end of the law, the, the telos, the goal of the law, um, which is, you know, a Christological reading of the law. But Paul's a Jew. He knows his law. Mm-hmm. He's saying th- this is what, what the law was pointing to so that there might be righteousness or justification for everyone. Um so that's our sort of framing statement, yeah, I think.
0: I think that's really important to start at ten four. 10 um, And then, of course, that discussion about whether the Mosaics Law has come to an end or consummation or this is the goal is a knobbly yes. point that will be discussed and forever.
1: Yes. I, I think end is probably not a helpful – because that suggests yes, – uh, whereas the, telos has a sense of goal or completion that mm-hmm. it, it – it served its purpose, it was a great thing, but it has now come to its fulfilment in Christ rather than a an end because it's defunct. I think the language re- really matters there.
0: Now, at the risk of sort of typecasting, this is a difficult passage, to this, put it mildly. It's but dense. But I do like – I think it might have been something Matt Skinner wrote um, – where he talks in this passage about Paul collecting biblical voices, which he does. There are references to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Isaiah and Joel, mm. in, all in this small passage. But Skinner talks about um, Paul being a skilled Midrassic DJ <laughs> by riffing it all together. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the issue of interpreting scripture is, yes. is a preaching point actually for, for this passage alone if you didn't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty theology of what oh, might be going on. Yeah.
1: And we've got some, I mean, this language of righteousness is, or justification, um, you know, is it? it it's it's I, I don't find English language very adequate for this, but it's something about being made right with God, right in, in right relationship with God. And we're going to get this sort of juxtaposition of, of works and faith and... Um, but even in faith I was struck again reading in something like verse nine, which might be jumping ahead, Fran, so you can it's we right. can go back. Um, you know, confess with your lips. So there's something about this kind of faith that is confessional. It has a kind of stated belief element to it. And believe in your heart. And um, in a sense here, he's riffing on Isaiah twenty nine that where there's a critique of the people because they can honour me with their lips but their hearts are far away. So Paul is wanting to sort of draw those back together and say that the heart might be the the belief that motivates practice as well as that this is not just an intellectual mm. confession, not just a mental consent that, oh, yes, this makes sense, it's lovely, but it's got to have this kind of deep impulse that's comes from another place that goes with it.
0: And also for Paul too, it's that... Um It's not our efforts that the righteousness that we yearn for, even if we don't know we're yearning for it, um, is a gift from God and has occurred already Mm. in Christ and is given as a gift. Is not something that we need to um, go through hoops to achieve, Uh, which doesn't mean we therefore, um, you know, party on. No. But because in chapter 6 in Romans Paul has dealt with the issue of obedience and how that our response to this gift of righteousness is is an obedience that is as you say it's all, it's in the lips and the heart it's all in one moment that mm. the moment of faith and reception of the gift or or recognition of the gift there is an act of obedience that occurs um that it that is a living out in response to not a striving for
1: yeah yeah, exactly. The other thing I really want to point out here is how often the word all is used and this gets a little bit lost in at least the NRSV English translation and for people who learnt a bit of Greek, this is your pas... Yes, pas. Oh, passer pun. pun, yeah. um, all. So in verse 11, the Greek actually, so this gets lost in the English with the no one who believes in him mm. is put to shame. Mm. In the Greek it's um, for it is written everyone or all believing... Mm will not be put to shame. So the negative is in a different place.
0: It's much easier to understand that translation you've just given.
1: I know. I I don't understand why. Double, yeah. 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 And then so no one's, you know, all all have the possibility of not being shamed. And then in verse 12 we get two of it. um, For the Lord of all... there's no distinction, is is generous to all who call on him. And then again in verse 13, so we've got four alls in three verses, for all um, or everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, Paul, like we get in Galatians, is just constantly pressing here the generosity and the the, the gift of grace that is universal and far more expansive than you know the people is arguing against might. Yeah, want to say. and
0: look, and this is leaping to our next passage, but I just see Peter in the boat or Peter on the water. Oh, <laughs> from these passages, well, yeah, it calls on the name of the Lord. He does say, "If it is you," yes. and we'll get to that. But the point is that there is yeah. a that that Peter is in this dynamic uh, when in that story we come to shortly. Yeah. But yeah, a, a big um preaching point for or. Focus for a sermon is um, the universality of the gospel yeah. and what that means and what it doesn't mean, and um, to give it a real edge because that can be a bit sort of happy, you know.
1: Yes, it can seem.
0: But if you read a bit of that David Bentley Hart on the matter, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sharpens quite a lot what we're actually saying. The, and the not universal saying, salvation, the universal kind of stuff. salvation yep. stuff, and um, okay, so if we don't believe that, you know, do we believe hell? And no, it it gets quite.
1: That's no, that's right. It, there are implications, and this is why I would probably link this back to the Genesis reading and say, you know, the all includes the brother who would mm. kill his own brother, or the brother who would sell his own brother for bits of silver, and 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 and, con- con- and convince a father that his child is dead. Oh, I know. mean, like that's almost the worst part. Like, mm. who takes a bloody piece of clothing and tells mm. your your parent, "Oh, the son you really mm. loved is dead"? Sorry, mm. knowing it's a complete lie, that's included in the all here. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, it's deeply challenging. Shall we move on? Oh, to I think we could look at Matthew. Matthew fourteen.
0: Did you know you could join our Facebook group by the well for extra content and discussion? So Jesus is walking on water, Robin.
1: He is. Well, actually, he's walking on the sea. He is. Oh, I like let's, that point. Yes, let's be really specific. Um, but our context here, with this follows straight on from that multiplication of loaves and fishes, feeding miracle. Um, and our scenario is, the language here is interesting. Jesus compels the disciples to get out on a boat. Immediately. He Immediately, he yes. So
0: there's something to me in my mark and ear that, Yes, so there's a huge amount of urgency, and it's not usual
1: in Matthew. No, it's not. But he he so and Jesus so is therefore literally sending everyone away. He immediately makes the disciples go out on a boat ahead of him, and he sends away the crowds, and he himself is trying to grab this time to pray. Mm. And um, evening comes, he's in alone. And in the meantime, our our scene goes back to these disciples who are now blown far from land on the sea. And we should probably say something about the sea, right?
0: Well yes, because it, it is of most of us already know, chaos yep. and fear and death, biblically. Yeah. Yep. So you said at the start when I said Jesus is walking on water, you said no he's not, he's working on walking on the sea, so Yeah.
1: So the um when we read this passage in the first part, where Jesus comes to them walking, and and this is in the NRSV version, in verse twenty six, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. This is this thalassa word for sea, which is this also has a cosmic resonance of this chaotic chaotic force that from where monsters come and that God will subdue and the stuff. The deep, the deep. When Peter later gets out of the boat and walks towards Jesus, it's a different word. He walks on hudatos. He walks on water. Now this mm. I've only noticed this for the first time and I don't want to read too much into it but I think it is interesting that Jesus walks on you know in a sense has for him it's functioning at this much bigger sort of apocalyptic level that he's able to walk on this chaotic force mm. Peter is just walking on water that's not a mere thing know no, most of no, us no. don't walk is, on water but it I'm, is different it's fundamentally different yeah.
0: is it water because Jesus is present and the water Maybe. still I have to look in the logic of the flow but
1: no, I think that's a great question to ask. Has it become water, water. that is somehow now Less controlled yeah. um, because of Jesus' presence? So some things to play with there. Yeah. Um, but we did skip over some stuff. Without, we did. Yeah. What do we need to notice, Fran?
0: Um, well, um, who, what is this boat? I mean, we can say, what, what would it have been for Matthew? Is it, re- is, it the tr- is it how Matthew's community might have been feeling about their life Mm. Shortly after the Jewish war. Like what, what so you mean some sort of allegorically Allegorically, what, you know, yeah. What would you say about that? And mm. I don't know whether that would be interesting for a preacher. Maybe yep. it wouldn't. Um one of the, well, for me, um, the crux of this passage is um interrogating verse twenty-eight in particular about what Peter says to Jesus, which is not um, let me walk on the water if it's – well, for a start, if it's you. There's sort of all this conditional stuff yeah, of disbelief. Yep. Yeah, if it's um, really you, yeah. He says, command me to, which is interesting. I think that like why does it say command me? Um, and then the next thing that happens is that Jesus says to come. Yeah. So the first thing is actually not I'll let you walk on water – I'll let you do this miraculous thing that is impossible physically. Mm. It's actually to come to me. Yep. Um, But the other thing to say is that God's asking – oh, he's asking God to let him do something that only God can enable, if you know what I mean. So is the miracle at the level of being able to walk on water or is the real miracle here that that, that God calls us only to do what God enables us to do?
1: Yeah. And I think – so – I want to take this back to your question about what's the boat because I've heard sermons on this that you know the boat is the safe place like the church and and this is about stepping out of our safe boat and boldly going to where Jesus goes and I think that's actually the opposite. To what's got – the Absol- boat is not a safe place. No. Well, at least not until Jesus gets there. Well,
0: if the water's um, as chaotic as
1: that, a and boat,
0: yeah, the safe place is the land. Yeah, actually.
1: exactly. <laughs> so they're not in some – it's not – so I just want to resist yes. that sort of allegorical reading yeah, that's yeah. sort of like the boat is the safe place and it's this evil world out there because actually the boat is a source of danger precisely because of where they are. Well,
0: that, that's actually what I mean. Yeah. Because of this, the, the the historical context of the yeah. – um. Jewish Jesus followers at the time and the yeah. the Jewish war that had occurred. That actually these these this is a community in fear and danger.
1: Yeah, there is no real there safe no place safe... except in the what comes through comfort, being in the presence yes. of God. Yeah. which is not. Um. So in that sense, you know, you pointing out this like, you know, Peter saying like, literally, Lord, if you are you, is what it says in the Greek. If mm. if you are you. Um, command me to come to you, this sense of I I will come to where you are. And the thing I really noticed is we get what feels like a rebuke, you of little faith, when Peter gets distracted. Um, But at the very same time, Jesus is saying kind of, why did you doubt? He is reaching out his hand Mm. and catching him. So it's not that doubt takes us away from Jesus. It's that actually he's stepped out in faith, he's wavered a little bit, and Jesus is right there to catch him. There's something about... Um, almost a paradoxical movement, I think yeah, I well, well there's
0: deep compassion, and yep. there's a a sense in which um Jesus is very aware where where his people where the people are, mm. you know how they yep. might be um feeling, I suppose yeah,
1: so I think if you're going to preach this as a kind of come, what is Jesus commanding us to do or calling us to do, where's the come taking us to um you can play with this idea that you know Peter you know he comes towards Jesus and at first he's doing really well it's only when he actually gets distracted and he notices the wind and he starts putting all his attention and focus on the other things that he starts to sink so this there is something here that's a kind of a spiritual analogy for um you know literally kind of keeping your eyes on Jesus what what it means to be taken away when our attention gets dragged away that that's actually when we cry out and might need that catching compassionate pastoral hand to draw us back in. Yeah, I don't know if that's
0: I, yes. Um and we you know I'm thinking about that that command that Peter said we live our lives of under many demands to do many things that yep. have huge amounts of urgency or they apparently do. Yeah. And it's sort of like um in this story that's in a sense those demands are distracting Peter. Yeah. Um they're very real. It's I mean, you know, that that's terrifying. There are huge waves and so on. Mm. Um, but it's this ultimate command of God to come and be mine, that is what you're called to, um, yep. that overshadows all. Um, and it's its getting back to what I referred to when we were talking about um, the Romans passage, that the faith and obedience happening at the same time. Um, Bonhoeffer's very famous in his Cost of Discipleship for summing up what happens in this moment, that it's not that you um, believe Six impossible things before breakfast, and then you are able to respond or obey. Do amazing things. But that it's things, actually yep. in the stepping out on the water, the faith and the, the the obedience and the faith are together. Yes, it's not that one came before the other.
1: And I would see a connection there with the Roman stuff with the the confess with your lips and believe in your heart. It is it is that you know that's what leads to actual action and lived out faith. It, it's the both end. The other. Yep. Up- Oh, yeah, you go. I was going to say the other dynamic going on here is actually in many ways this functions as a primarily as a story about Jesus' identity. So we should read this. Matthew has carefully crafted a gospel where things are revealed in sort of steps. And we've had an earlier stilling of the storm story that's in chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, where when Jesus there showed power over the sea and the storm, The question from the disciples was, "Who is this?" Like that, they're also terrified. But the question is about who who is this man who can do these things? Now we get um, in verse twenty-six and twenty-seven. A kind of they cry out in fear. They say it's a ghost. And Jesus' language to me to them is, "Take heart, I am." So that's that. I am. We get Mm. in the Hebrew Bible for God. Um, And at the end, again after this encounter. With Peter getting out of the boat and then Jesus coming back with him, um, the passage ends with those in the boat worshipped him. So literally offered obeisance, bowed down, and said, "Truly, you are the Son of God." It's one of the most, it's one of the first really strong declarative statements of worship and acknowledgement of identity we get from the disciples in Matthew's gospel, um, and stands in stark contrast to their confusion in the earlier story in chapter eight. So. Um, one of the questions I have, and I don't really have a clear answer to this, is what is it that happened that makes them recognize this as God?
0: But, like, Yeah, I don't think there is an answer in the sense that that's the mystery of the Holy Spirit moving amongst us and within us in any moment. Yeah, of, well, of, yes. Of what, but but what le- does Matthew think, does is, Matthew yeah, think is happening?
1: Is, is it the ability to rescue Peter from the waves? Is it the ability? Is it the miracle of walking on water? Is it simply the self declaration that? I am this person and don't doubt. I mean,
0: all of the above.
1: All of the above, exactly. So, yeah. um, which is a way of saying this is less about a miracle. Like, let's not get tangled up in the logistics of who can walk on water. And that's not is, the real miracle. The real no, miracle is being commanded to come, to come and to have faith and then to recognize you're in the presence of God. God,
0: yeah. Yep. Before we close, I just want to um, recommend I've done this before with respect to another gospel, I think, but. Dorothy Lee's book, The Gospels Speak, Addressing Life's Questions, her chapter on um, fear and anxiety in the the Gospel of Matthew is really worth reading for preachers. Um, She goes through how fear and anxiety particularly present themselves in Matthew's Mm -hmm. Gospel, how um, doubt for Matthew in God is actually doubting the divinity of God, so you doubt that that God can create as God has created um, and the words of comfort that particularly come through in Matthew's Gospel that we do see in this passage. Great. Thanks, Fran. Thanks for listening.
1: By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.